ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 7th of February. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Governments across the country are failing Indigenous communities with their closing the gap policies by taking a business-as-usual approach and government knows best. They're the damning findings from the Productivity Commission, the independent economic think tank that advises the federal government. Closing the gap policies are supposed to improve life expectancy, education, health and housing for First Nations people. The Commission now says governments must give up some of their powers to Indigenous communities to achieve real change. Indigenous correspondent Carly Williams has more. Darren Plazina is a resident of the northwest New South Wales town of Walgett. And like most other Aboriginal people he knows there, he lives with chronic illness. Uh, diabetes, blood pressure, couple issues with my old body. Darren Plazina juggles multiple specialist appointments at the Walgett Aboriginal Medical Service. He loves the service it provides and that it's his mob who run it but says it can be under-resourced. We need more doctors. There are doctors, different doctors flying in and out. We would like to have one doctor available to us at least five years, but unfortunately we can't get that. This isn't just a problem in Walgett. Aboriginal community-controlled organisations around the country have told the Productivity Commission review of the National Agreement on Closing the Gap they are frustrated they don't get the support they need from state, territory and federal governments. Now the Commission's backed those concerns with a scathing report. Here's Commissioner Natalie Siegel-Brown. Governments across Australia largely have not fulfilled their commitments under the agreement. They don't seem to have grasped the nature or the magnitude of the changes they promised to make. Closing the gap was established 15 years ago. But in 2020, governments signed up to implement a new national agreement with a radical overhaul of the strategy. The Productivity Commission was asked to consult with Indigenous communities on progress so far. But its report has strongly criticised government departments for being unwilling to relinquish control, lacking accountability and providing only tokenistic engagement with Indigenous organisations. If governments continue to put money towards programs that don't align with what the community is saying will work or uh, or whether these programs are measured in terms of what the community value as markers of change, then governments will continue to allocate public money ineffectively. And Natalie Siegel-Brown is calling on government agencies to be more transparent with data and how the money is spent. And that includes amending the agreement to better emphasise power sharing and recognise the expertise of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations. Data on closing the gap targets is expected to be released by the federal government next week. But last year, only four of the 19 targets were on track, and some of them were going backwards. Acting lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks, Catherine Little, says urgent action is needed. One of the things that the Coalition would like to call for is a dedicated closing the gap fund, and that fund is enshrined in legislation and directed to the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and the organisations that support our self-determination. The only people that are ever held accountable for that are our communities. The only people that ever suffer for government's failure to act in the way that it should is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In a statement, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, acknowledged the report reveals limited progress on closing the gap reforms 
and says she'll consider the findings of the report with input from Indigenous organisations and state and territory governments. Kylie Williams there. The federal government's been promising a crackdown on dodgy vocational education colleges and today it will introduce the first of its planned bills to do that. There'll be tighter checks on registering colleges, a fivefold increase in fines in some areas and an attempt to shut down businesses that aren't focused on training simply on exploiting students, providing cheap labour for unskilled jobs. Brendan O'Connor is the Federal Minister for Skills and Training and he joined me earlier. Brendan O'Connor, thanks for joining AM. In a nutshell, what is the aim of today's proposed laws? Lifting the quality of the vet sector, lifting the quality of education and training to students. Um, Two million or more than two million students working full-time in the vet sector, requiring the skills to supply a modern economy. Uh, What people don't always understand, Sabah, is that pretty much half the skills that supply our labour market come from the vet sector, and we need to elevate the standards uh, in a in a you know an economy that's changing rapidly, the transformation of the energy sector, supplying skills to the care economy, the traditional trades, cyber security, wherever you look, there are great demands, uh, and we there's an urgency about lifting the standards and so that we can have good jobs for workers, the business can have the skills they're crying out for, and we do, and we look after industry and serve the economy. One change is a fivefold increase in fines. What will the quantum of that be now? For what? Just, and and, yeah. and just sorry to bunch this all together, but how confident are you that that will actually deter bad behaviour and encourage operators to do the right thing? Well, look, it's a combination of the reforms that will lead to the change of behaviour and that will also capture those dodgy providers. So, yes, you're right in saying that we've seen a five-fold, proposed five-fold increase in penalties. Um, the advice I've received in engaging with stakeholders, <clears throat> it's become clear that they see some of these uh, current uh, penalties as the cost of doing business. Some of the providers are willing to pay a fine and continue with their practice of, of, of acting, um, if not unlawfully, acting improperly. And then, of course, you've got egregious conduct which can, can be unlawful. Uh, we, and we know by increasing the penalty significantly, it will deter the behaviour and, uh, and it will capture those that are transgressing uh, and are breaching uh, their requirements as a registered organisation. So it's the combination of the penalties, but also the powers to, to the regulator, to ASQA, to be able to suspend or cancel a registration. Uh, these powers are important. And I want to be very, very clear here, Sabra, the overwhelming proportion of providers do an excellent job, but this sector is undermined and its reputation is besmirched by dodgy providers and we need to see the end of them. So in fines, how much are we talking about? Yes. So the maximum fine for conduct where it's, you know, um, we're talking civil fines here, but this could also lead to uh, criminal sanctions where people are acting unlawfully in a criminal manner. Uh, But we're talking up 993,000 as a maximum penalty for a transgression. And so they range from, they really have gone fivefold of all their penalties. Now, obviously, that's at the higher level. Um, There are lower penalties for lower transgressions. And I think this increase in penalties will deter bad behaviour. We have to look after vulnerable students who are subject to exploitation. Many of these students are making sometimes their first, you know, economic decision as an adult. They end up being induced into 
uh, enrolling in courses, sometimes they're subject to fraud and we need to make sure we protect their interests but also protect the standards of our education and training in this country. As I say, millions of students are engaged in the vet sector. We need to look after them. Ultimately, though, it's critical for industry, for our economy, for our labour market, that we have the highest possible quality uh, education and training sector. Now, you mentioned ASQA before. It's the Australian Skills Quality Agency. It's pretty much the skills watchdog. You gave it $40 million last October to conduct a blitz on non-compliant operators, including a tip-off line for people to dobby in questionable colleges. What has happened since then? Look, and that's led to some very important um, uh, actions taken by uh, ASCRA on 28 providers, uh, and 28 providers have uh, stopped operation as a result of uh, those actions, and over half of those providers, the action was stopped on half of those providers because of the intel, because of the information provided on the tip-off line by complainants who have been subject to, um, you know, bad behaviour or fraud or whatever. So there has been action taken, but we know uh, it's a more significant number than 28 providers. There's well over 4,000 providers in the vet sector. Uh, As I say, overwhelmingly, the providers do a good job, an excellent job. Um, But um, there are too many beyond the 28 that we need to deal with, and we need to stop new entrants coming in because quite often... There's a lot of, again, look at the history of the vet sector, you see quite a bit of phoenixing, people, uh, providers being caught out, doing the wrong thing, disappearing and then coming back in another another sort of guise to, again, continue bad practice, you know, fraudulent behaviour and we need to really stamp that out. Brendan O'Connor, thanks for talking to AM. Thanks very much, Sabra. And Brendan O'Connor is the Federal Minister for Skills and Training. King Charles has been seen in public for the first time since his cancer diagnosis announcement. He and his wife, Queen Camilla, waved at passers-by as they were driven from their home in central London to Buckingham Palace. The King's also caught up with his estranged son, Prince Harry. The Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, has revealed the cancer's been caught early. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins is in London. Sabra, it was an appearance that happened without much spectacle or fanfare. He was simply spotted in the back of a royal vehicle. Uh, He was there with the Queen, Camilla, and they appeared to be in good spirits. They were smiling and waving through the car windows to onlookers as they made their way down the mall in central London and they arrived at Buckingham Palace and then boarded a helicopter believed to be headed for their Sandringham estate. And the Sandringham estate is known for its privacy. There's large gates out the front. It's in a country area, so it's somewhere where they could keep away from prying eyes and much of the press speculation. A day on from the public announcement, how is the British public reacting to this news? As you can imagine, the UK is still coming to terms with it. There's been enormous shock and some sadness as well. I mean, this is a country that's gotten used to enormous stability with their monarchy. If you think of Charles's mother, she had relatively good health well into her 90s. Uh, The Queen Mother lived beyond the age of 100. Prince Philip uh, late into his 90s. So certainly some surprise. But when you talk to people on the streets, I think there's also an acknowledgement that the King has access to some of the best healthcare in the country and that will be on his side. Perhaps his age isn't, but there's certainly hope and optimism that he will overcome this. And are there any more details about what type of cancer the King has and what his treatment might involve? 
A day on from this announcement, there's been no more official details from Buckingham Palace. And I think from this point, Forward, we can probably expect that many of the details of his treatment and recovery will be kept private, that they won't be running a commentary on how things are going. So there's certainly plenty of speculation within the tabloid press, but nothing official from Buckingham Palace, and I don't think it will be announced anytime soon. Rishi Sunak, I think, has said that doctors caught it early. That's about the only thing that we do know. But the other big news today is that Prince Harry is home to see his dad. That's right, a royal reunion after this shock diagnosis. Uh, It's very well publicised that Prince Harry was in a rift with his family after he and his wife, Meghan Markle, chose to leave the royal family and did a number of explosive tell-all interviews. But it's also understood that the king reached out to Harry and privately told him this news over the phone and almost immediately he has come back to the UK and we understand that he had a brief meeting with the king today, somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes before the king uh, took off to his Sandringham estate. So there's certainly some commentators, uh, members of the public who are hopeful that this could signal a sign that the family is willing to heal that rift. Isabella Higgins there in London. United States courts ruled Donald Trump doesn't have legal immunity from charges of trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election result. It's a significant blow to the former president, but he's vowing to appeal the decision. North America correspondent Jade McMillan's in Washington. Jade, what does this mean for Donald Trump? Well, Sabra, this is a comprehensive rejection of Donald Trump's argument that he can't be prosecuted in this federal case, which relates to the January 6 attack on the US Capitol and includes a charge of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Donald Trump had claimed that he was acting in line with his official duties as president and therefore had legal immunity. He has argued that presidents need immunity, uh, otherwise they wouldn't, in his argument, be able to properly function for fear of being prosecuted by a future administration. And his lawyers also tried to argue that a former president could only be prosecuted if they'd first been impeached by the House of Representatives and then convicted by the Senate, which did not happen in Donald Trump's case. He was impeached after January 6, but then acquitted by the Senate. A three-judge panel for the US Court of Appeals, though, unanimously rejected all of the former president's arguments It said that it cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. It also argued that Donald Trump's claims would collapse America's system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches of government. And how has the former president responded, Jade? Well, he's criticised the ruling, as you'd expect. Donald Trump has described it as nation-destroying and said that he will be appealing against it. That means that this case potentially could end up being heard by the Supreme Court. In the meantime, this trial that had been due to get underway in Washington next month has been delayed to an unspecified date. As we've seen in all four criminal trials that Donald Trump is facing, his legal strategy really has been to try to delay them for as long as possible as he continues his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. He remains the overwhelming front runner in his hope of then taking on Joe Biden the presidential election in November. Our North America correspondent, Jade McMillan, reporting there from Washington.
With the Reserve Bank of Australia keeping the official interest rate on hold and warning it may even go up again, struggling households face the prospect of waiting months for any chance of a reduction in mortgage repayments. Any guest reports? At a supermarket in northern Brisbane, shoppers lament the lack of interest rate relief. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. We're paying enough. We're already in the middle of a crisis where we have to eat literally frozen food for dinner for a family of five. That's exactly how we get by because we can't afford anything else. It's not really fair, is it? That's echoed by this woman whose two children have disability. Oh, I'm over it. Um, It's just um, increasing all the time and home loans going up and I just don't think that they've got the whole concept really with life. So that's how I feel about it really, yeah. Even people who've paid off their loans are worried. My power bill is about 95% increase in the last 12 months. The groceries in here, 30, 40, 50% everything in the last six months. You know, I've got plenty of buffer at the moment, but I might live longer than I think. How old are you? 70. Uh, We have got more since the um, interest rates went up. Have you um, found life a bit easier while interest rates have been higher in terms of having that added income on your savings? Oh, not really noticeable. No, I think we notice it still with cost of things, so, yeah. It's offset. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, everything's gone up a bit. This woman doesn't know how her family would have managed if they hadn't fixed their mortgage. We were fortunate enough to have our um, interest, or our payments, mortgage payments at a particular um, level, so we've just been paying that, that whole time. Um, and so as the interest rates were rising, it wasn't affecting us as much. Cost of living though, our, um, I am a sole trader, so um, as far as our, um, yeah, our cost of living with our bills, groceries, I've got kids in high school, um, all sorts of things like that, um, we've really felt the pinch with that. Um, but I just thank God that we can still pay our bills and that we were in a better situation with our mortgage. The Reserve Bank's decision to keep rates on hold has been welcomed by AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver and he expects there will be better news soon. Well, we think the relief will come as early as the middle of the year. Uh, I, d- I don't see any surprises in the information from the Reserve Bank. Uh, it left rates on hold as expected, but still remains a bit cautious, um, which is understandable given where they've come from. And they're obviously concerned that if they cut too early or signal that they're, they're going to cut too early, then inflation might bounce back and they end up with egg all over their face. And um, what could cause rates to rise again as the RBA did warn? Well, a, a further rise in interest rates would, I think, require a renewed upswing in inflation uh, I think that's unlikely, though. Um, it, it could happen because uh, you know, the supply side problems flowing from the problems in the Middle East. Uh, I guess there's also some risk that the tax cuts uh, coming through in the middle of the year might cause the re, you know, reignite spending in the economy, um, causing inflation to pick up again. Um, so if those things happen, then, yes, we could get another rate hike. But I think that's unlikely. AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver ending Annie Guest's report. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 
For hundreds of years, the royal family's health woes have been tightly guarded secrets. But under King Charles, things are changing. He's announced to the world he has cancer. So now he's gone public, does it change how we perceive the monarchy? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. app.